Welcome to Veterans in Academics. This podcast highlights people and topics where the veteran experience and academia overlap. Join your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, in this groundbreaking content. Each week, we explore new stories, topics for you. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Veterans and Academics. I'm your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, and today we have a very special guest with us from Virginia Tech, and our special guest is Dr. Jim Davinsky. Jim, sir, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Luke. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to this wonderful series that you're curating, um, convening all these different people from various backgrounds together. Uh, to talk about veterans and academics. Um, my name is Jim Dubinsky. I'm a retired um, Army officer. I spent 28 years in the military, 15 on active, 13 in the reserves. Um, I was a field artillery officer, uh, and I have been at Virginia Tech, and I'm an associate professor there, um, and I've had a lot of different roles there, and I can talk about them from starting a, a, a program of professional writing to, after the shooting tragedy, starting a, a center for student engagement to helping to start a veterans-focused um, initiative here. So those those can come up later, I imagine, in the conversation. Absolutely. Beautiful, beautiful. Excellent, Jim. Okay, so Jim, we have a couple questions that we ask everyone. And, you know, definitely with, with your time in the military and your long uh, history at Virginia Tech and your uh, own education, can you tell us something that you see that veterans do well in the higher education space? Yes. <laughs> I, I actually, I think, you know, as we often hear um, stories that, that talk about the difficulties that some of our colleagues face, it's really good that you start with this positive focus because I do think it's really, it's really true that we come, we come to school with um, so many skills and so, so much knowledge and experience working with people and understand how to use our time well. You know, I guess I would probably put it into two things, and that would be this mission-oriented focus that we all come in with. Right. And that, 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 you know, anybody who serves in any of the armed services has that kind of, of, of perspective because that's, that the mission's always first. And people are right there with it, but the mission is driving us. And so we come in with this, with this mission orientation, which, which then is usually linked to a, a goal. And so we have, we, you know, we, we, we know usually when we come in, we have a goal, we want to work towards it. And secondly, as I indicated, probably the best, um, I guess the best part of our training is that we learn to manage our time well. We're really, we're really good at, at, at balancing competing demands, handling a variety of tasks. So juggling a lot of balls at one time, particularly, you know, it, it doesn't matter if you were enlisted or an officer. I mean, once you, 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 you almost always are faced with more than one kind of a task at a time. Certainly, as you spend more and more time in the military, you have more and more responsibility. You have more and more tasks you have to juggle. And so that, those two things probably are, I think, the primary benefits of, of a veteran. I can talk later about how those served me well, but I think right now that, that, that would be my answer. Beautiful. Beautiful. And that is uh, something that I have witnessed myself and then something that the research is 
pointed out and you know I, I think there's been some interesting data recently showing at this the success rate of veterans compared to their non-veteran peers in higher education and a lot of these uh, are really highly attributed to the variables that you discussed, you know, just simple time management, uh, taking things seriously, intrinsic motivation, you know, it's, it's really interesting and, and it's really, it's really great to hear you answer that because uh, it's something I think there has been in the past uh, kind of a negative connotation, you know, what, what do veterans lack in higher education? But the reality is there's so much that veterans have to offer all of higher education and themselves. Right. So, okay, great. Very, very nice positive start, Jim. Now, um, what would you say would be the opposite of that? What is something that veterans in higher education could maybe do better or improve upon? Probably, and, and it, it's a hard one because, and as I'll maybe talk about later, I, I've gone through this in different phases in my life. I, I was an ROTC uh, scholarship student. I went in the military after eight years. The Army sent me back to get a master's degree. Then I went and taught at West Point. And then I got out of off active duty and went and got a PhD in the reserves. So I've been in, the, I've been in academics in three different kinds of perspectives, you know, as, as someone on, well, dur during service, after service, and before service. I've been there at all three cases. Um, and, and I've seen my colleagues and, and, and young veterans in, in pretty much all the same um, situations. Probably the, 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 the hardest part, uh, particularly for veterans who have not been to school before, and, and so there's different categories we would want to talk about. I think veterans who have, have a sense of the college environment, so they have maps in their head. They, they basically have already done the recon, so to speak, right. and they understand the landscape, and so they can they can find their way around it much more easily. They have fewer difficulties. It's the it's the it's the it's the dramatic difference in the landscape from a military um, infrastructure to a higher academic infrastructure. The landscapes are so different that I think people, especially younger uh, members uh, of our of our younger colleagues who don't have any prior you know they might they, they might have gone in the military for any number of reasons but they're now they're focused on trying to get you know get their get their education and they're they're much more mature so they're gonna they have the potential to do much better than their peers who are coming in at 18 or 19. Um, but they they also have been in a different environment and so they're they're trying to i guess navigate so navigation would probably be the term i might use uh, in this in this troubling landscape, and then the second thing that I think is I see as as difficulty is that they they're used to having a cohort. I mean, they're used to being part of a community. I mean, the greatest thing about the military, um, besides the fact that you're serving our country, is the fact that you have a you're with a group of of, of like-minded people for the most part who have for whatever reason they got in there. That mission focus keeps them together and creates a common purpose and a common goal. And all of a sudden you're in a place where everybody's out for him or herself or themselves. And, you know, you may be alone. Plus you don't have that peer group to support you because you're not in a barracks or you don't have, you know, you don't have your, uh, if you're an officer or NCO, you don't have those, those meetings that, that help shape you and your peers you can call on at any time. And, and all of a sudden you're, you're sort of alone. And it's, you know, and that's really one of the, the issues with veterans in higher education, which certainly you, I've probably spoken about and other people who are in the veteran services side 
can speak about much more readily than I, but as a, someone who's had a lot of veteran students, it was one of the reasons why I helped start this veterans initiative that we'll talk about later. That was probably, it was that, it was that would, those two things were, I was seeing young students who had prior military experience come in and they were struggling with those two concepts. I don't, that's nothing familiar here. And then I don't have, I don't have peeps. I don't. <laughs> right, right, right. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's interesting, Jim, on, on both points, but I think um, particularly where you're mentioning the individualism of a campus, right? Because in the military, even if people aren't your friends, so to speak, you still, you still get along with them enough for mission accomplishment. And then you come to an environment where everyone is out for themselves, and and we're, we're you know this is seated in a society where everyone is out for themselves, and then you look to your faculty and staff, and then you realize that oftentimes they don't communicate with each other, so they're out, they're very individual, and so it's like this big scatter of of just these little islands, and that is uh, that is something that I've noticed with um, people coming back and, and coming into higher education is that hyper individualism. And then uh, I think that coupled with the speed or the lack of speed at which things move on a campus, you know, those mm. are always the two biggest that I see. Yeah, no, I think that you're right. And it is from my, from my perspective on any number of whether you're at a micro or macro level, it's our society faces these competing demands. It's not just the, I mean, that there's this notion of we, you know, uh, uh, idea for the common good. And then this dramatic sense of, of our kind of democratic uh, way of structuring um, uh, our country is that you have this deep individualism, which competes against the common good. And you see that in all kinds of ways across our society. And it's certainly, it's certainly embedded in, in the institution of higher learning. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think this whole past year has been, uh, you know, a, a litany of examples of that. <laughs> exactly. I didn't want to try to. That could yeah. take us down a, a whole different path. So I just yeah, no, no, I no. We won't there. on that. But that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, Jim, so you you mentioned a few things earlier. You mentioned ROTC was a part of your past, and you mentioned that you were a field artillery officer. I've got a I've got a soft spot in my heart for indirect fire people. Um, can you tell us a little bit, Jim, about what prompted you to join the military, and then what your experience was like, and and of course, you know, a little details about your job or jobs. Uh, yeah, so I, I you know, as I'm quite a bit older than you, I was, I you know, very aware as young young person in the 60s and early 70s um, during my early teen years about the Vietnam War. And a couple of my cousins had gone off to war. I'm one of 41 first cousins, so I have a lot of cousins. My dad was, as I'll mention, was, this, was the seventh of eight children. So, um, so you know, I was very aware of it and, and I signed up for the draft. But and when I started college in 1973, I was 17 because I had skipped a year of school so, and the draft ended. So all of a sudden, you know, I had options and I come from a sort of a military connected family, not a military family. My dad served in, in the army during the Korean War. My four uncles, his brothers served in World War II in the Navy 
and then later in the Air Force. My other uncle from my mom's side was in the Army in World War II. So there's a lot of um, a lot of background, and and they all believed, and they sort of inc impressed upon me and all of my cousins that we we were all immigrants. You know, my grand was my grandfathers were born here in the late 1890s and four or five years after the immigration. So they were first. So my my parents were second generation, and we were the first generation in my group to go to college for the most part. My one of my dad's brothers did ultimately go to college, but. Um, and all impressed how much this country had given our family, basically. And even though, as I as I might mention later, one of my uncles served in in the Navy and ended up um, he was on a battleship at Pearl Harbor, he ended up in a submarine corps, and committed suicide after coming home and having a child. Um, and they all, and my brothers who loved him, you know, I mean, my uncles who loved him, still said, you know, that it's worth it. It's something we should do. So even though Vietnam, there was all this anti-Vietnam sentiment, I decided to apply to West Point and apply for ROTC. And I, I chose ROTC. I got into West Point, but I chose ROTC because I thought it would be a good, a good balance. I'd get, I'd get the military side, but I'd also have the college experience. Okay. Um, and so I, I went there. And then, of course, in 75, when I had to sign on the line and say, I'm definitely committing and we're, we're you know, I'm watching everything going on in Saigon thinking this is crazy. What am I doing? Of course, I'm an English major, which made all of my colleagues and friends and teachers say, you can't do this. Just back out, pay them back. You know, don't do this. And, you know, my, my dad um, flew down and we had a long weekend and talked. And, and then basically I, I said, you know, I, this is the, the reasons for me doing it in the first place are still the right reasons. So I, I decided to go in. So I, I, I got commissioned in 1977 and um, okay. you know, went to Fort Sill, went overseas. And, and served two tours um, in in troop units. Had a, had a, uh, a couple options to command. Um, you know, I had I had a lot of great experience with my colleagues. And I was actually in one of the nuclear units. We were a unit that was not one of the last non-nuclear units in the uh, in the European uh, theater, and we converted to a nuclear capable unit. So I went through all that kind of training. Um, and you know, it's hard to even imagine now a tactical nuclear weapon we you know we were we were we were using them not using them but we had them we were guarding them we were trained to do that i have that as one of my specialties i'm a nuclear chemical target analyst i understand the damage they can do um and you know and then the army offered me after my second um troop unit uh and second tour um to go a couple of options and they i chose because i always had wanted to teach and um was really fascinating, and this sort of also gave me a sense of giving back. My my first battalion commander, when I met him, which was the first day I got, I mean, I got to Germany. I ended up having to sleep in the airport because nobody was there to pick me up. I had to take a train by myself with all my gear to get to my 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 duty station across, uh, uh, which was in uh, eastern Germany and near Nuremberg. And I was in um, uh, Seventh Corps artillery, and um, and. I, I got met by the, the operations NCO who got me issued all my gear, my weapons, and we went straight to the field that same day. And and so I, I had a long conversation with the, the battalion commander who basically said, you're trained to do this, but you're gonna do this because of this happened in our unit. Won't go into those details. Long story short, um, I you know in that conversation, he learned that I wanted ultimately to go back to school and be a teacher. Okay. So I come back after my first tour as my first tour in Germany and he called me. He was I, I I lived in Maryland. He somehow he knew that. He knew the day I got home. 
he called my house, my parents' house, and said, I want to speak to, you know, Captain Dubinsky. And um, uh, he did. And we, I met, went down to Fort McNair, and he said, so what's going to happen with you? And I told him I was going to Fort Silla. And he said, well, do you want to teach at West Point? And I said, never thought about it. And so and I thought only West Pointers taught at West Point. Well, anyway, he explained to me that his dad had been a department head in mechanical engineering, that he had gone to West Point, that he was the third generation to go there. And they were really looking for people who were non-West Pointers to teach. Okay. And, and, and he helped shape my next path. And, you know, the, the, I, I, it's a long story, but the point is, is that, again, I, have, I had this example of a man who took an interest in me for, and he had no reason to do so. I mean, he left the unit after the first two years. He went to shape headquarters in Belgium. He went to the army war, you know, the, 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 I mean, the industrial war college at McNair. And all of a sudden he fought, he was following me and he sought me out, sought me out and helped me find my way. So I, I, you know, that, and that's part of the beauty. I think that's part of the beauty of, of the military environment and, and veterans. And, and again, the sense of why I'm doing what I'm doing is that, I would not be where I am if he hadn't stepped in, you know, and I, I, I owe him notable, um, to, to being a grad student with four kids. And it was a dramatic <laughs> shift. Um, you know, it was, a, it was also a dramatic shift to be on active duty at Berkeley. And, um, <laughs> so both of my experiences in, in the military, in higher education were really formative, I would say. Right. Right. Very interesting. Very interesting. And so, Jim, let's talk about this because, I mean, even you mentioned earlier and, I, and you know, you kind of weaved it in here, but you have a interesting history with the overlap of your service and your education, because as you highlighted earlier, you have a period in higher education prior to uh, being a part of the military, but then you have education while you're in and while you're serving, and then you have education afterwards. So, so what was higher education like for you? And, you know, talk about however you like, but I think it's be interesting for the listeners to hear some of these stages and different parts of your life. Obviously ROTC was a lot of listeners would probably recognize it. Um, and it was it was fascinating because you know as as as, as I would imagine it has been for the last since, since you know 9/11, a lot of people serving in ROTC environments were coming straight out of combat units or they had combat training. So I had, I mean, our our um, senior NCO, Master Sergeant Patterson, was a three-time you know tour three tours as a Green Beret in Vietnam, and so I had the benefit of uh, tremendous mentorship um even though the war was over by the time i went in this active duty um i was trained by people who were really well trained and experienced and had so i i, I was i was i benefited from their service and experience in combat and that helped me a lot on the ground because a lot of, of course as a young lieutenant um you know, almost every single NCO I had had combat experience and they were also paying the price of that challenging tour or tours in Vietnam. And so, you know, I having the benefit of the mentorship from my captains, majors, and especially Master Sergeant Patterson, uh, I, I, I was able to be a better young leader because I was, I was able to listen and I understood more when they were having alcohol problems or they were having issues with their spouses. I 
I, I could draw upon that well of knowledge that he'd helped me, I guess, uh, I guess drill. <laughs> we drilled it together, I guess, and, and, and I was able to draw upon it. So that was really beneficial. And then going back to school as a, as a um, captain uh, with um, eight years of active duty, and going to a school like Berkeley, which was, I was the first person from the, you know, the West Point, apparently English department that sent, try, they give you, it's crazy. They send you, so you want to go to school and they send you a list of schools. It was like Princeton, Brown, Yale, Harvard, Berkeley. It's like, oh my God, you know, I don't know if I can get into any of those schools first off. But then secondly, you know, it, but they expect that because they want their, the people teaching there to have the best possible educations. And so, you know, I, they wanted me to apply to Berkeley because they I had an English degree and they thought you might have the best chance. And we've had a couple of people try, they've not gotten in. And I did get in and I was really fortunate to go there actually because one of the first courses I took was with someone who had been a conscience objector during Korea. So he was my father's age. And so I, again, I'm learning, I'm getting this wealth of experience from a very different perspective. Right, right. right. Which then I was able to use when I taught at West Point, these young, young, cadets who are going to soon be our our next generation of leaders and so that was wonderful and then after the first gulf war when i decided to leave active duty and i went back with four kids i stayed in the reserves but i i you know i was pr pretty much a civilian at this at this institution and there was no there was very little um in terms of i don't even think they had a veteran service office i mean you know they they were sort of the the, the benefits were all linked into the registrar's office and right. you know so i i was and i had four kids i was living i had to live a half hour away from campus i didn't have the money to stay in the little town which was always almost always college so expensive and but i think you know what i would have to say is that and i spoke i speak i spoke about this slightly earlier both both on active duty and um, when I was in the reserves going through my master's and PhD, I didn't struggle nearly the way I think some do because I had, I already knew what college was. I'd gotten a degree at Wake Forest. I had, I had this, I had the maps in my head. I understood what a registrar's office was, what they do there, what a bursar's office, what do they do? I understood what the dean's office and what the provost, who the provost was and, and, you know, what student affairs was and what it wasn't. And, and so, I knew how to navigate it. So when I needed to get my GI Bill benefits or I needed some help with, with whatever it was, I could find it pretty quickly. And I could, I could, I, and because I'd been, I was a major and soon got promoted Lieutenant Colonel. I mean, I had this leadership background. I knew how to, I wasn't going to go in there and just be treated like a nobody, right? right. I, even though I was a grad student and a nobody in that, in that, in that infrastructure. Um, I wasn't going to be treated that way. And I was going, I was able to the more, you know, stand up and assert myself in a way that was both, you know, appropriate to my position, but also appropriate to my needs. And, um, and with the respect of, so of, of the, you know, the, at that point, 16, soon to be over 20 years of service by the time I left my PhD program. So, and in fact, that really benefited me when I ended up doing, I, I, I did a first Two years as a TA in English and then the second two years as a TA in the business school. And so I was working with these management professors and marketing professors and they assumed, you're a Lieutenant Colonel, you've managed, you know, 700 people, you've managed, you know, that way. I mean, you know, they, they, they understood what I knew how to do and I knew what they were teaching. I just didn't have the theory behind it. Right. Right. So that was really the, really for me, higher education was a sense of learning 
everything I needed to know to apply what I knew in the military to a different environment, to the civilian environment. Okay. You know, that's where I had the benefit of those maps, that navigation. I, I could find my, I, I had, I had that, I had the compass already in my hand. I knew where to go. That's really about it. That, I mean, but that's interesting. And you know, that makes complete sense because you had that, but you were able to put something together from prior education and your time in the military that I feel some people coming from the military sometimes just have a hard time putting together on a campus. And that's the rank structure. You know, you understood, you understood, uh, you know, an assistant and associate professor, just like you just mentioned, you understood who the provost was. And, I, you know, I encounter people all the time who, if you start talking about instructor, assistant professor, associate, full professor, provost, and, you know, it's complete, it's completely new to them. And then you have to break it down into, okay, well, this is the rank structure on right. campus. Yeah. Right. I mean, the first thing I would say, and this, I, I, I was actually talking with my, one of my PhD students who's finishing his dissertation. And he's, it's an interesting dissertation because it's about the rhetoric of infrastructure. And, and I was the only one in the sort of of the, my colleagues who understood what he was trying to do because I understood infrastructure, right? Having the military background. And I, you know, as I tell him, the first thing I always do, and I recommend to anybody who's going to take a job is look at the org chart. <laughs> Figure out where right. you stand, where, right. you know, where you stand, who, who, who do you report to, who reports to you, right? And once you understand that, then you can start to figure out, is that satisfactory? Do I need to change that? Is there a way to manipulate that to my benefit? Or are people, are there, are, do I need other lines of reporting that, that aren't there that would make it, you know, if you're trying to say a creative writing center, um, well, wow, I, you know, we're, I'm only reporting to the chair of the department, but really we're serving the whole university. I need to be reporting to the provost. And, you know, so this is like, we have to figure out how to make that happen. I, at least I got to go to the dean, if not the provost, you know? And so this right. is, these are the kind of things that ha understanding the org chart, which is basically what we are talking about, helps you understand the system. If you can understand the system, then you can find your way in it. Absolutely, absolutely. That's great. And now it's so easy to understand. Now we can go into organizations and look at the org chart and Salesforce <laughs> or some kind of computer program, you know, and literally see, see it with pictures. Yeah, that's great. So Jim, tell us um, a little bit about your time in the, in the military and your education spread out uh, across this time. How did your time in the military influence your time in higher education, like your studies and, and some of the things that you're doing now, sir. Okay. Well, I simply put, I, you know, I had a degree in literature um, as an undergraduate and that then led me to get a, you know, my Colonel Heiberg said, you know, you should go teach English at West Point, which is what I wanted to do. And that led me to get a second degree in literature at, at Berkeley, um, which is really, again, literature and English were something I loved. Actually, I was much better at math and science as, you know, it's funny, my, my oldest daughter got a undergraduate degree in, in creative writing, but her, her master's in her, she's in her second master's now in decision sciences. She's a systems analyst. So she's got both sides of the brain. My youngest daughter was a math major. So our family tends to have, if you're, if you're not working out of both sides of your brain, you're not fully engaged in our family. So, so I, you know, I, I, I ended up deciding when I, when I talked to the, the provost of Wake Forest, who was a mentor, and I talked to my thesis advisor at Berkeley, they both said, you know, the world of literature is starting to 
fall off. This is their late, you know, right again, right after the Gulf War, 92, 93. And, but the, the technology world is taking off. And in, in the English world, that's going to be writing and professional writing. Right. And, 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 you know, at that point, and I just have an article with a colleague accepted about this, you know, there were, there were only two solid PhD programs in the country in professional communication, technical communication. And now they're over 25. And it's during that period when I went in and we, and I was, I was brought into Miami University of Ohio with two other colleagues, both like me, you know, you know they, in fact, they were both older than I was. They were both uh, single moms and one had three kids, one had one, and we were a cohort and we, so that was great. And we, we created, we helped create this, this program within the English department in professional uh, communication, a PhD. And that's why, and so instead of spending four years in the English department, we spent two years in the business school. And that again was part of this new, which ended up being a, the business school got someone to fund it. Now they have an endowed professor with three PhD students all the time. So we sort of helped lay the groundwork for that. And, you know, then I got hired, um, you know, I had nine different interviews and I got hired at Virginia Tech. I was still in the reserves and I got, but I got hired at Virginia Tech to, to build a program in a traditional English department, which again made having two degrees in literature coming in, I knew who they were. I knew because they were my professors at both my degrees. I also knew how they felt about what I was trying to do, which was they were either scared of it or they were a, sort of opposed to it because it wasn't, wasn't the same thing. <laughs> it was practical. It was focused on application. It was, you know, writing is not a content area, it's a process. And so, um, you know, I had to work really hard to build bridges and to build connections. And, and, and so again, the military experience really helped me shape this program. Again, I, I talked to my, with no course releases, mind you, I, I, I was still doing the research I needed to get tenure, but I also designed nine new courses and taught six of them myself in those first four years. Oh, wow. And, and, you know, three years in, three years in, the dean approved two new hires, and the college approved the program, and we were off and running. And and I built that program around concepts of service or service learning, which then, four years later, when the shooting tragedy happened, the provost calls me and says, "Hey, would you lead a task force on student engagement?" Which then developed the Center for Student Engagement to address the, the tragedy. And I took three years out of the out of the English department to go get a, a new center off the ground that, that, you know, found ways for the university's students and faculty to interact with the communities uh, around us and really enact the university's mission, which is at prosum that I may serve, of course, one of the reasons why I picked Virginia Tech. So, I mean, my military service and my academics have really been, I think, fully integrated at all points. And I've tried to find ways to, synthes to, to create synergy uh, from what I know into what I'm doing and to use how I, how I know things and put that to work in doing things and, and then helping to shape new programs. So I've had a chance to build a number of programs. The most recent, which, which we will probably talk about soon was this, you know, helping to start a, a whole veterans in society initiative, which is where of course I met you and, find, and, 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 and convene these things to bring people who might have similar interests who were doing similar things, which you were doing with your, with our colleague, Travis at Eastern Kentucky. And, and, you know, it was all happening, I think for the same reasons and for the same purpose, but we needed to create a critical mass colleagues cohort 
peeps, however you want to talk about it. We <laughs> right. needed to get together to make something happen. And it wasn't that. So I would say if I, of the things that I've done with my colleague, Bruce and Eric, you know, at the, at the beginning and then Eric left to go, he had to go his own path, but we tried to keep him involved at every step of the way. I mean, we created a vehicle to bring people together. And then when that's what, so that's really what this, this latest initiatives, veterans and society is trying to, again, find ways to support our colleagues um, and, and understand who and what they are and how they and their families interact and really to put the university's resources of scholarship and teaching uh, behind this. Excellent. Excellent. And I'm so glad, I'm so glad you took it here because uh, yeah, I do want the listeners to know that Jim and I have known each other for several years because of what he was doing at Virginia Tech with Veterans and Society. And I will say for me personally, uh, the first time I went to Veterans, I believe it was the second conference uh, that you had. And um, it was probably the first conference in my life where I was uh, very excited to go to a conference. <laughs> I'll admit that, that sometimes, you know, I, I, in the past and, and my, my background was education and specifically world language studies, which always had interest me, still interests me. It's interesting to go to those conferences, but they did not excite me in the same way that this did uh, because I was working with Travis as well and, and had taken over a lot of the classes in um, the veteran studies program at Eastern Kentucky University and was trying to do some writing. And I thought I was going to be in a little vacuum when, you know, a few hundred Google searches later, I found you guys. <laughs> and, and the fact that there was actually a place at, at an actual institution where people were showing up and these ideas that I thought were in a vacuum were ideas that appeared everyone else thought were in vacuums, but then someone, you, realized these things were popping up all over the nation and you capitalized on that. And so that was a great, great experience because uh, I'll let you talk about it. But for me, but for me, it was a great experience because of all the different disciplines, you know, of this was something that was new and fresh, yet I felt like uh, some of the other places that I had talked to when I was helping establish some of the programs and myself, it was kind of like, okay, we're going to do something new. Is it going to catch on? Could we do it? And then I felt like at Virginia Tech, that was my first real glimpse of this is possible, you know, and this, this is needed and people realize that it's needed. And that was very motivating, uh, very motivating. So can you talk us through uh, about how some of the, you know, the details in, in Veterans of Society came about? Because I know, I know listeners of this podcast will want to hear that for sure. Well, okay. That, that, yeah, absolutely, Luke. And, and you know, I mean, I, I, the, the idea happened, started to take shape when I was in this job as the director of then called the Center for Student Engagement and Community Partnerships. Now it's called VT Engage. And I met, um, I knew Bruce and I met Eric, who was a student and a master's student, uh, like you, former Marine. And um, you know, we ended up being on Eric's uh, dissertation committee. We started talking about how could we serve all this this influx. Because of course, 
I'm at, you're talking 2008, 2011, during the, my tenure in that. And it's during the surges in, in Iraq and, and buildups overseas in both, in both theaters. And so there's this tremendous number of young students, young veterans coming back to college. And, and we were seeing, we need, to, we need to figure out both how to support them. And we started thinking, you know, there's a need to really create an academic area of focus around this around veterans because we're different we're not we're not biologically different but we have a different culture and so it's 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 you know and so part of what we we started looking at is looking for you know women's studies and and african-american studies and lesbian lesbian gay transgender studies and we started thinking okay so we could create a veteran studies how do we do that well i learned from one of the best teachers again i owe uh, when i was in this center creating things the guy who was running the the community uh, foundation uh, called the Community Foundation New River Valley, um, he he said the best thing that he ever learned was bring people together and and get the best you can from all their ideas. And so he taught me the power of convening. That's awesome. And and that became where I said I'm gonna you know we're gonna you know we need to do this. If this is gonna happen, we can't do it by ourselves. And, and, and we know there's some groups of people we found that you and Travis and other people were doing things that were really important, but everybody was sort of, as you said, in these little pockets and they were all isolated. What would happen if we started bringing us together? So that was what we did. And, and you started seeing these interdisciplinary, really rich environments where people from, you know, the NEH grant that we wrote in had a summer institute where we had nine different academic disciplines for that in 2016. 27 faculty, nine different academic disciplines three weeks, tremendous, you know, after having already put on, you know, three conferences. And so, you know, we, we were, we were moving just to grow a community. I mean, this is, again, my colleague, Andy Morikawa, the, one of the finest men I've ever known, just like Colonel Heiberg. I mean, so much of what I know I've learned from at the feet of these other people who were so wise and, and, and Andy had worked in the community all his life. Um, and again, Andy was this really interesting guy because his parents had been in internment camps in during World War II. And so he was a young child during that. And so, you know, he was really interested in veterans, but from a different perspective. And so he can and 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 he, you know, we started thinking about well, what about his family? And how you know, and so start the question about identity. And and of course that's where we got to uh, Heidi Nobles and this and the fact that, you know, you've got children and you've got wives and you've got um, you got this whole ex experience, and so we—that's what we started thinking about. It's not just veterans; it's veterans and their family. It's this whole community. Because what is a post when you go anywhere? You're at a post. You're with—you're with not just the guys and girls who are serving. You're with everybody, right? You're with—you right. know—you're with everybody. And and so that was—that's really where we started to put the emphasis, and and that's what we've been doing. And that group of people, the the sort of core of that, had helped sort of create enough of an environment for our, one of our great colleagues. I'm sure you're going to talk with this, you know, Mayor. Uh, Mariana Grohowski, who who really she it was her energy that got the Journal of Veteran Studies started, which is now housed at Virginia Tech. And of course, we met. You talked with Jim Craig already, and he he's been doing all this great work at University of Missouri St. Louis. And you know, there's just it's getting these minds and and energies together, in that you you're able to create something that that ha, it might be sustainable. I mean, you know, any one of us can create something that might just be fine in our own place. But if we really want to serve the community, and our community is huge. I mean, you know, 
millions and millions and millions right. of veterans and their and 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 their and their um, significant others dependents. We have to find ways to engage uh, a large enough cohort so that we can apply for grants, so that we can really and again like that any I mean so we can make people realize that we are we are an entity that needs and and deserves to be recognized. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, Jim, so for current work and future work, where where do you see the future of, of any of the initiatives that, that you're going? I hope you're going to talk about veterans in society, but but anything that you're doing right now, what 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 can we expect to see on the horizons for you, sir? Well, I would say the first the first thing we're going to do is, you know, Veterans and Society, we held four conferences at, at Tech plus the NEH Summer Institute. The fifth conference was going to be moved to start to spread it around to some of our colleagues who were starting to grow. That was going to be at Jim School, University of Missouri, St. Louis. It got canceled because of COVID. We're going to hold a, a, a sort of symposium here in May under the auspices of both Veterans and Society. It's going to be housed at Tech. But it also is linked to the Veteran Studies Association, which is something that we as a group of, of people have put together to include Jim and, and our colleagues at, at Arizona State and, and Mayor at, at, uh, and uh, one of our Corinne at, um, in Texas. And so we've got, a, we've got a, a group of people together. We're putting that on in, um, in May, May 18th. You can, find, you can find more information about that and maybe you can put a link to it somewhere. You can also visit veteransandsociety.org. You can visit... Um, the, you can look for, you can just Google Veteran Studies Association and it's veteranology.org. We, you know, we started, so we actually started an association to help create an academic structure, uh, uh, administrative structure to support the work that we're doing. And we have a journal that supports the work that we're doing. And I'm working on trying to get a, a minor going here at Tech. And personally, I'm, I'm studying, I'm, I'm writing and giving talks around veteran poets who have been public figures. So in, in, in the sense that, you know, so what do veteran, you know, people often think poetry has, it, it's sort of this artistic aesthetic thing, it's off to the side. If you watch the, the beautiful young poet give the inaugural address this year, you would realize that's not the case. Right. And that's never been the case. Right. I mean, but, but people don't know that. And so what we're trying, I'm trying to do is say, Look at these great poets. Many of them were combat veterans. Archibald MacLeish, combat veteran, artillery officer from World War One. James Dickey, Air Force veteran, combat pilot, World War II in Korea. And I'm studying their poetry and talking about the intersections between their poetry and 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 their military service and also their, their work post-military and in society, this notion of veterans in society. What do veterans contribute to society, to enhance it, to, to strengthen it, to help really people understand, and this is the, the tension that exists, to maybe come to try to lean more towards the notion of a common good than towards the notion of individual rights, to try to get our country to believe that people really should give something back. And if they, if everyone gave back something in service, again, the mission of tech, prosum, that I may serve, if they if they, if they put that in as part of their personality, our country would change for the better. Then people would understand more about who veterans are and what they do because they'd understand the notion of something larger than him or herself or themselves. And so this is really part of what Veterans Society is about. It's this, it's this larger project that I hope will help contribute to the benefit of the demos. 
um, of, of the larger project of, of our democracy and keeping it alive and well. That is beautiful. That's beautiful. And I, I couldn't agree more, though. It's like, you know, you see with the idea of the veteran, when you see the idea of uh, the veteran in society, it's like, yes, we're talking about a group of people. However, it's a group of people that really represents all of the nation, you know, especially in contemporary context, you know, we're, we're looking at the, the most diverse service, uh, the most we have the most female serving right now than ever in history, uh, a lot of, and so many more other variables. So many things are happening, and it's like if you can get a bearing on this population, really, this is the the test for the entire nation. Yeah, I, when you study veterans and you study the history of our country, you see really the intersection between the military and the country, we're almost always ahead of the curve in terms of integration, in terms of, of desegregating, in terms of, I mean, the fact, I, one of the proudest moments I, I've had is when all these chiefs of staff, when, when then President Trump um, put out his, his ban against transgender service members, and all of the chiefs of staff got up and said, this is not right. I mean, you know, and now with President Biden has reversed that. And I, I you know, and, 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 you know, when you figure that only one half of 1% of the population of the United States is on active duty at any one time in the reserves, act, you know, on, on active service or in the National Guard, that's a small number. And, right. and so the, it, you don't want so the people who are volunteering to serve, whatever their race, nationality, gender, you know, uh, it doesn't matter. They're giving something in protection of everybody else. Half of 1% are out there protecting the other 99.5%. And so, you know, we should, be, and their leaders afterwards, and that's again, this notion you say, that it's, we're a representative, we're a small number, but we contribute way beyond our number. And I wanna be able to help people see that. Right, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you're doing a great job and I'm so happy that uh, I'm so happy actually that we're recording this right now because I think we can reach an even larger audience, uh, which is part of the aim of this is, is letting people know kind of outside of, of academics and veterans, even though this is called veterans and academics, uh, <laughs> reaching that outside base to, to educate the, the public that this is going on and this is why. So uh, this has been a great episode. And, Jim, I really appreciate you coming on, sir. Luke, it's great. You're, you're doing great work. And that's the, that's the wonderful thing that I've learned in bringing, convening people is to just admire and learn from all of you. Um, and that's the, that's the power of, of that process, right? And, that's, and you're doing that here with this. This is a form of convening. And I, I, I value it highly. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's very humbling. And, and you know, I couldn't agree more. I feel every time I get to interview someone, I take away so much. Uh, it, part of me feels selfish because I get to hear it first. <laughs> you right know, on, I get to hear it first. <laughs> well, wonderful. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to another fantastic, if I might say, episode of Veterans and Academics. And we have been uh, here today with our wonderful guests, Associate Professor Dr. Jim Davinsky of Virginia Tech. Jim, once again, thank you so much, sir. 
You're welcome. Thank you, Luke. We thank all of you for listening. Veterans in Academics is an all-veteran production of Freedom and Prosperity Think Tank. Content creation is brought to you by Dr. Luke McCleese and Dr. Michael Bevers. Web development is by Osvaldo Vargas.